I'm glad you're here looking at Jonah chapter 3. Remember when we started Jonah, I mentioned that we were going to attempt to look at it from God's point of view or at least to assume that it is about God first. And so I have attempted to make God the subject of, of every thesis that each of these sermons has had and this morning's not any different. I sound a little loud and I'm scared later when I am going to get louder that I'm going to hurt everybody's ears. So, um, thanks. So, we have um, in chapter 3 a, a well-known section of the story where Jonah is going to obey after the fish vomits him onto the land, which is quite creative persuasion from God, I might say, to strong arm him that way and so he decides he will he will go and he will do and it's so easy to make that chapter three about Jonah and we know that the Bible tells us who God is and how we should live and so oftentimes we only read it to see how we should live but here's the problem with that if we read chapter three and we say okay don't live like Jonah he's a negative example of how we should live do you see how he he didn't do what God wanted him to do and then when he did it he did it half-heartedly don't be like Jonah well then the natural question to ask is why not why not be like Jonah well because he only half-heartedly yeah but why not do that and you're you're ultimately going to come back to this answer because God doesn't want you to do that and then you have to ask okay well then why does that matter and if you keep going backwards here's where you're going to going to land I hope it matters because of who God is so if you just start there and talk about who God is, then you can start and then the, the train, you know, has the engine in front and the caboose at the, at the end like it's supposed to. So that's why we're starting with this thesis this morning, that God is gracious. And as we see, certainly Jonah is the subject of, of chapter 3 to some extent, but God's grace is splattered everywhere in Jonah chapter 3. And I want to pull examples from it and celebrate God's grace. So let's Stand, and I will read these ten verses. Chapter 3 is pretty short. We'll ask for God's help, and then we'll make five statements that are examples of God's graciousness and shown in this chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jesus, thank you for being our God and loving us so much, and and thank you that there is a disaster we deserve that you don't give us when we trust in you and love you. And I pray, Lord, that wherever we are, in our relationship with you, we would lean in, we would get closer, we would celebrate the grace that you display all the time that we see in this chapter this morning. I pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first example of God's graciousness is in verse 1 and 2. And that is that God is gracious to bring us full circle and give us multiple attempts for obedience. Verse 1 and 2 says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Which echoes, of course, verse 1 of chapter 1, which says that the word of the Lord came, and he said, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. So, just some details different in verse 1. Of chapter 1, he tells Jonah what to say. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he tells Jonah, I'm going to tell you what to say. Other than that, it's the same commissioning. And how gracious is he to give us chances for obedience again and again? I'm hoping you can think of examples in your life. I thought of examples in mind this week where I blow it. And it is only a matter of time before God gives me another chance for obedience in the same area. Um, and that is by his grace that when we sin, and here Jonah is not accidentally sinning, he is not incidentally sinning, he is on purpose in rebellion. And so even sin to that extent that God would talk to us and say, I would like to give you another chance instead of I would like to pour all of my wrath upon you until you are a very small flickering flame and ashes. And instead, I would like to give you another chance. It's incredibly gracious. And in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about the, the um, mistake that we can make to know that God's going to give us chance after chance after chance that maybe we're not scared to just blow it, that we know, well, if I blow it, he's just going to display his grace and he's going to give me another chance. So really, why take him that seriously anyway? And... Um, you know, the logic of people who think that we would willfully disobey a God because he's gracious, first of all, is pretty bad logic. It's like saying that this afternoon I'm going to total my car because I have insurance. And that's why I'm going to, I have insurance, and so everyone should be totaling their car, run into everything you can so that, that you can get another car. But it doesn't make sense. Just because you're covered doesn't mean that you're going to do something uh, on purpose. Or just because I believe that my wife is so loving that if I royally screwed up and compromised our marriage in a terrible way, she would forgive me. That doesn't motivate me to royally screw up my marriage so I can be forgiven. It does quite the opposite, right? The, the greater love and the greater forgiveness that's potentially there calls from me greater obedience and loyalty and relationship. But Paul talks about something interesting in, in Romans 3 that I wanted to read to you and tell you how it convicts me because it relates to this grace of God to over and over again help us. When, when Paul was writing to Romans in verse 8 of chapter 3, 
He says, oh, that might be the wrong verse. Let me take a peek. Yes, chapter, let's start with verse 5. I'll read it to you if you haven't found it. It's on page 940 if you have a pew Bible. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means, for then how could he judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not, here's the logic, why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, here's my challenge to you and myself. Oftentimes I, I think about that verse and we see here in Jonah how gracious God is. And, and, we, and we remember, because we've been instructed, remember though, his grace is not permission for us to sin. And we remember this verse from, from Paul where he says that people were misunderstanding him. And so we have to be clear that, that he is a just God and he wants obedience and, and all of that's true. But here's where I was convicted this week. Paul is not apologizing that people misunderstood the way he talked about grace. Nor is he saying I should talk about it differently so people don't misunderstand me. So apparently Paul talked about grace to such an extent, celebrated grace to such an extent, declared that God was gracious with so many examples that people misunderstood him into thinking that he was saying that, that even if we sin, uh, we can just increase the grace of God, so maybe we should, should go and sin. And he says that they've misunderstood it, but he doesn't repent of what he is saying, and he can, continues to say that. And I asked myself this week, I feel like God was asking me to ask myself, do I talk about grace, celebrate grace, live out grace in a way where people could misunderstand that I love grace and depend on grace so much that I'm not scared of sinning because I know God will forgive me? Am I causing that same misunderstanding? Or, if I, or am I so careful not to cause that misunderstanding that I miss living in the grace of God? Do you see the, the decision there? And I think I'm the other way so many times, and probably so are you. But Paul wasn't like that. And here Jonah is just getting this lavish, amazing grace like we do. That when we sin, God's response so often is, I would like to give you another chance. And it's so gracious the way God deals with Jonah here to speak to him. Because in this book, he controls the wind and sends that storm. He controls the fish and sends the fish. And the next week we'll see he controls a plant and he controls a worm. But he does not control Jonah. He talks with Jonah. And that we have a God so gracious that he controls the weather and he controls maybe animals and he controls the sea and he controls nature and he controls the stars and he controls the gravitational pull, but he speaks to us about obedience. So his grace is profound just in these first two verses. Next example of his grace is that he uses us even when we are half-hearted or hard-hearted, and Jonah is both. In verse 3 and 4, we see that Jonah obeys God, but only in action. Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was an exceedingly, sorry, Nineveh, not Jonah. He was not a city. 
Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh should be, shall be overthrown. Now, I'm try, I don't want to read too much into this, but it, it, it is of note, and it's God's grace either way, that the city is three days' journey and Jonah walks one. So we don't know if he walks one and the people repented to such an extent that he said, okay, my job's done. Or if he walked one and he said, you know what, forget about it. I did one day, we'll see what God can do with that. And then in God's grace, the people repented. We don't exactly know. But the facts are, he was told to cry out for 40 days in Nineveh, and he cried out for one day. And that God did an, an amazing deliverance and revival in a city from one man's half-hearted, partial, legalistic obedience. He didn't even walk all the way through the city. He was serving as a minimalist. And, and we, we all should be convicted that we do that from time to time, right? We ask, okay, what does God demand of me? And we want, when we, even in the context of our question, we want the minimum answer. We don't want the Jesus answer. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength and all of your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. No, 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 no. I mean, like, what does he want from me? Like, church attendance and tithing, right? And, and so, <laughs> we certainly don't like the verse that says, laying aside every sin, and this is in, this is in Hebrews, Casting aside every sin and the things that ensnare us, we run to Jesus. That's a dangerous phrase. It's as if, yes, there's sins that are wicked we should repent of, and there's things that ensnare us that aren't exactly sins, but are sins in the sense that they keep us from getting to Christ as fast as possible, and we're supposed to repent of those as well. We don't like that. Because we like to live as minimalist either. We like to have habits, and we like to, to ask people who read the Bible often. We say, is that a sin? And we love it when they say, no, not exactly, and say, good, because I'm going to keep doing it. Just that was the answer I was looking for. And so Jonah, he, he has no heart for these people. We know in the next chapter, he has no care for these people to be delivered. If it was his choice, he wouldn't be there. If it was his choice, they wouldn't be repenting. And he only preached one day when he was told to do more. Half-hearted, hard-hearted, and still greatly used. There must be something to be said about how even we, like the, the man who repented to Jesus when he was on the, the earth and he came to Jesus and he said, uh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So there needs to be an admission in us sometimes that we're half-hearted. Lord, I believe, but I don't believe at the same time. Just help. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go this direction, but it's not with all my heart, and I'm sorry, and I hope as I go you'll fix me. Our reality is that complex. We're not 100% sold and, and, and committed very often. And yet God in his grace can do amazing things through people who half-heartedly follow him and hard-heartedly follow him. It's, it's because of his grace. Third observation or example, God is gracious to grant extra excitement to new believers who have the most unbelieving friends. Because God is smart and strategic. So, verse 
5 and 6. And the people of Nineveh believed God. This is amazing. I mean, this is fascinating. Jonah half-heartedly and hard-heartedly spoke for one day in a great city, and the result is, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe and covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. Here's what's not in Scripture, but we can be sure is true from the story of Jonah, which is fascinating. We're told specifically how God is working on Jonah, that he's given him a command that Jonah rebels, that God sends a storm and a fish, brings Jonah to repentance in the belly, has Jonah vomited onto the land, and then Jonah is in action obedience. Uh, in action, he's obedient to the Lord. So we know the story of Jonah and how God is working on Jonah. Here's what blows my mind. That is the story for everyone in Nineveh that was saved. It's not in Scripture. We're not told that story. But God, in individual personal grace, is working on every single individual who decided to trust him that day to the extent that he was working on Jonah. He was working on every single individual on that ship, the sailors who repented. He was behind their stories. He was orchestrating events. He's doing all of this work to bring people to repentance. In his grace. And so, consider, here, here's maybe one example of it. Like, and if we consider what God is doing for one, just one second in the physical world, it might give us a glimpse of what he's doing also every second in the hearts of, of people. So like this very second, if we could hit pause and we could just study this second. Somewhere on the planet, God is bringing the sun up. And somewhere else on the planet, he is bringing the sun down. So somewhere the birds are beginning to chirp. And somewhere else the crickets are beginning to to chirp somewhere the tide is coming in and somewhere else the tide is going out and in this second he is holding in perfect gravitational pull the sun and the moon and the earth and all of the stars and that's what he's doing just on the second that we could pause and evaluate and he's doing that every second all the time and he's never tired and that's just what he's doing in one second in the physical world can you imagine the the strength of god the wisdom of god the grace of god that he is also for six billion plus people, individually talking to them, individually wooing them, individually orchestrating events so that they might come to a time to believe. This is an amazing, gracious God. And how wise and smart he is that when they believe, because of they've been living in wickedness and he's been bringing them creatively out of it, that when they believe, they're surrounded with all these people who need to hear the exact same thing they just experienced. And so the word spread really, really fast. This one day was multiplied. And people were telling each other uh, horizontally the word is spreading and apparently to such a great extent vertically the word spread and got all the way to the king. And the king responded and we see that God is gracious to have believers or Maybe seekers at this point. We don't know if the king has already believed or if he's just seeking. Make policy changes. So 7 through 9, the king makes a proclamation. Says, 
By the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let him not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let man and beast be uh, call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is really, really fast. One day from a prophet who's not even on the scene, right? All these people are experiencing this great salvation and this deliverance and this repentance and they're fasting and they're crying out to God and Jonah's nowhere there to help them. He's abandoned them to go and watch the city and hope that God follows through with wrath. And yet, it reaches the king and, and even policy has changed and the king issues a decree. Everyone's got to fast. Everyone's got to cry out to God. Maybe he will deliver us. There's a, it's, a, it's a fun activity to, to research how much good has happened if we just use this country as an example and realize that the source of that goodness is so often one Christian person following the Lord. That it, our literacy programs that teach people to read, the most popular one was founded by a guy named Frank Lubach who was a missionary and wanted to teach people to read so that they could read the word of God. That we have national parks because there was someone who was a committed Christian who loved the outdoors and wanted people to be able to praise God while outdoors. That child care and, and experience grace ministry that we have here, that any care for the unborn, that almost all care for children, all stances against abuse, that if you work backwards from all of these policies that help protect people, you find a Christian person obeying God. I mean, without one person obeying God, we don't get Chick-fil-A. So, good things. Last observation. God is gracious to spare us from deserved wrath. Verse 10, what good news. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I want to elaborate with, with some maybe seemingly heavy doctrine here, but I, I think if you grasp it, it will increase your praise for Jesus. That simple phrase, God relented, is amazing. Because we are not unlike those people. We deserve wrath as well. And I want to give you two reasons which are really the same reason. Two sides of the same coin on why God can relent. One reason God can relent. And, and we're, I'm purposely not talking much about the Ninevites or Jonah. Trying to just talk about God. But you saw that the repentance the Ninevites made. They said they would turn from violence. And you can just Google Ninevites and violence. And read the history of how awful they were. And so they were definitely deserving of God's wrath. So, so how could God not give them the wrath that, that they deserve? And here's an, an, a compelling answer. God can forgive any sin, any sin, the worst sin you can imagine. He can forgive any sin because 
besides not trusting him and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus points out. Because every sin fails to be worse than the sin of Jesus dying on the cross. The worst sin is that an innocent man who was also God, who came to us to love us, was killed. It's the worst sin ever. The murder of God. Jesus on the cross. It's the worst sin ever. And so you have that sin on the scales. Any sin you set also with that sin will always be lifted up towards God to be forgiven because the weight of Jesus on the cross can never be moved by any sin. So there's one way to look at it. Here's the theology of that verse, of that point. The verse is Romans chapter 3, verse 25. I want to read it to you in closing. It says, God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me celebrate that verse and talk about how God is totally okay forgiving the Ninevites and forgiving us, how he can stay holy and gracious. This morning, one of the songs we sang admitted, our sin is great, but his love was greater. But it's not just because his love was greater that we can be forgiven. Something had to happen for us to be forgiven. And in that verse, it says, because God loved us, uh, people in general, he had overlooked their sins. The Ninevites are wicked, and then he forgives them. David has an affair, and then he forgives him. Uh, all these sins that seemingly look like this, this God is putting them under the rug and, and hiding them. And so this verse, which we don't look at very often, says that God sent Jesus to the, to the cross to prove he was righteous, not to prove he was loving, not to prove he was gracious, to prove he was righteous, to prove that all those sins he overlooked still indeed needed to be paid for, that he did indeed hate those sins. Because he looked like a judge that you do something wrong, you stand before him, and he's just like, that's okay. No worries, man. I know you'll try harder and do better next time. And then there's no sentence. And so obviously that judge would get a reputation for not being a good judge, for not being a judge of justice. And so God had a reputation, a reputation on the line of not being a holy God. How can he be holy if all his people sin and he just issues no sentence, no he says the wages of sin are death, but they're not dying. So on the cross, God solves an amazing problem. The problem is, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm holy and I hate sin and I punish sin. And he says, I'm loving and I want to know you personally. Well, his holiness won't let him get to know us. And his, his love and wanting to know us compromises his holiness and makes it look like he's not holy. The, the brilliance of the cross is that on the cross, God says, do you see that indeed I hate sin? And do you see that indeed I love you? And it all happens at the same time as Jesus dies on the cross. 
so that he could forgive these Ninevites, so that he could forgive Jonah, so that he can forgive us. And when we accept his forgiveness, the verse 26 says an amazing thing about our God, that he is both just and justifier. See, those should be contradicting. If you're just, you can't justify these people. If you justify these people, you can't be just. But Jesus came and died on the cross so that God can say to the whole world and forever, I am holy, I am just, And I am loving and I justify people and make them right through my son. It is brilliant and it is wonderful and it is grace. And that's why over and over again in Jonah 3 we see God is gracious. The cross allows that. And I hope that we will enjoy that. Let's pray. Jesus, we we need to know you better. We need to follow you better. I pray that we'd be overwhelmed with your grace and that it would motivate us to obey, not motivate us to stray away from you and, and know, that, that, you know that it's okay, you'll somehow take care of us anyway. I pray that if people are compelled to obey you, that we would do it wholeheartedly, that we would do it to the best of the ability you give us, that we would do it past our ability by your grace, that you would make great things happen because we obey. I thank you that While you control the physical universe, you talk to us, and I pray you would talk to us as we read your word and talk to us in this service through your Holy Spirit, and that we would talk back with a resounding yes, 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 I will obey, yes, I will do that, yes, I want to follow you, yes, I want to be yours, yes, because you are the great God who is holy and is loving at the exact same time, and no other God can pull that off. So help us to be your people and to love you and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.